Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Happy Saturday, everyone. Hello, happy Saturday. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we talk about all things related to God, life, and the Bible. And helping us on the show tonight, this week, and every week is the ever-faithful, ever-present Bob Bontrager with a camera. And there's Emily. <laughs> There she is. She is our chat box moderator for tonight over on YouTube. And we do want to encourage you to go join us on YouTube for the live chat. That's the best way to interact with us. We want to say hey to Allison joining us tonight, our production assistant on the show. Uh, and I see Laura's checking in. Rachel's checking in. A lot Amber of Franco. All our friends. Yes. Glad Ooh, to see you. I love Rachel's comment. She says the show's helped her to keep keep from going insane during lockdown. Stephanie from <laughs> Quebec. Debbie. Oh Quebec. Maria. D, everybody's here. Y'all coming through. Go ahead. Hello, hello. You guys, I have to acknowledge that I don't have on my glasses tonight, so I might not be able to read anything. I, I just, it, I'm so used to the glasses. They had a little accident. I sat on them. Oh, and no. yeah, and so now I'm kind of like, Without glasses, but um, yeah, we're gonna make it through. We will make oh, it through. Oh, there's Jeremy joining hey, Jeremy. us tonight from Chicago. Very good, yes, hey, Jeremy. Hello, Shannon. All right, Hi, Helen, Libby. Yes. All right. Great to see everyone. Here we go. I'm excited. Now, if you are watching, and I assume that you are, please support the show by sharing the show. Give us a like, a thumbs up. Um, share the show with your friends. Hit that share button. Yeah. Subscribe on our YouTube channel. Hit, follow us. Yeah. Like thumbs up. Yes. All, all, those, all those. That's the audience participation. Comment. All of these things help our algorithm and help to prevent shadow banning. Yes. Because that's real. <laughs> and if you didn't know, we have swag merchandise. You yes. can support our show by going to the Center for Biblical Unity website, centerforbiblicalunity.com backslash merch. Because this a, show is brought to you by the oh, Center. It's brought to you by, by the, yeah, the Center you know, for Biblical Unity. That's what it says in the script. Yeah, in, in the script. But sometimes I just Center go for off Biblical the Unity, Theology Mom Podcast, and Family 210 Clothing. Yes. And you can go get your merch. And there's our friend Justin doing the double repping this week on Facebook <laughs> with a mug and a shirt. Yes. I appreciate that. You know, don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. So if you get, do get uh, some of our family to 10 swag, it goes to help support our family, help support the show. If you get a CFBU t-shirt or mug or other onesie <laughs> face mask, it I talked to, to someone today for who biblical had a unity. face mask yeah. yesterday. Yeah. She had a face mask on. I was like, wow, Center for Biblical Unity face mask. That's right. So how was your week? You didn't do anything this week, did you? My week was so busy. <laughs> if crazy. you saw my Facebook post, I had like 17 meetings this week. I am so done. I was like, wow, I can't wait for Saturday. Yes. So you did on Monday, you did Carrie Smith's. We had Carrie Smith on the show last so I had week. three podcasts yeah. this week. Yes. So you had Carrie Smith on mm. Safe Space, but it hasn't 
dropped yet. Hasn't dropped yet, but that's a really fun interview. Yeah. I really appreciate so that'll that be one. something to look forward to. Yes. Then you did on Thursday, you did a live stream with Bobby, Bobby Conway, Conway the, one minute apologist. And yes. you were supposed to talk about black lives matter, but instead you went down some other we went wormhole. down many rabbit trails. <laughs> and so if you are looking the, I think the thumbnail still says black lives matter, but we are going to have a do over this Thursday during, during our normal family meeting time. So everyone can come Thursday at six to our live stream and hear about black lives matter. So it'll be on yeah, the one so minute. It'll apologist. be on the Bobby Conway, one minute apologist through their um, YouTube channel, but we will stream it through our Facebook channel. And you're really going to talk We're about really going to talk about black lives matter. <laughs> All right. Someone wrote in and was like, what is this? And you didn't I was talk like, about it. And so I had to, to text Bobby and I was like, he's got a point. <laughs> he's got a, a real point. And so we apologize. We did not mean to go down many tangents and rabbit holes, but we will definitely be talking about Black Lives Matter okay. um, on Thursday. Thursday at six o'clock. I do and believe Black I'll, Lives I'll do, Matter. I'll put it up as but, a, you know. a Facebook event. But the big news of the week was that yesterday it dropped that you were on Ali Beth Stuckey. Yes. The relatable podcast. Relatable podcast. Yes, yes, there it is. That's me with my my coffee right next to me, just in case, and the glasses that I sat on. (laughs) They are sitting there on the table as well. Yes. So Ali Beth Stuckey was uh there, uh, let's see, you recorded that early Thursday morning. Recorded at seven in the morning on Thursday. And then it dropped on Friday. Yes. And we've known it's been coming for a while, a but we weren't really sure, like, is it really going to happen? It got postponed. And then it, it really happened. It really so. happened. Yes. And our guest tonight, Neil Shinvi, was also on Relatable. So I just feel like I am just walking, following in his footsteps. That's right. That's my goal. Let me just, can I, how close can I stand? That's right. So, yes. Um, so now let's get into to the show. Yeah, because we are having Dr. Neil Shinvi on. Uh, I call s- him Cousin Neil. Yeah. You know, uh- <laughs> but that's okay. That's all right. That's all right. He so, might not know this. He might not know this, but I do. So we get a lot of letters, um, a lot of letters. We do. About, have you read blank? Yes. And what is your opinion of blank? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, so some type of book. And, there's, and so um, we usually just refer people to Neil's website because he writes amazing book reviews. Yes, he is so smart (laughs) like he just he he writes so well and what he pulls out of the book both the pros and the cons he's very balanced a a balanced view on what the book is offering i really appreciate it i think that he's a resource that is there so then we don't need to read a book and then put out you know our own review i can send people to his website and trust that the information is there and accurate because quite frankly we don't have time to read all the books no (laughs) No, no, no. But I am thankful for yeah. Neil who reads all the books and writes amazing reviews. Yeah. Um, so we thought it, we'd have him on the show. Yes, because people are writing in with yeah. what do you think about this book? Pastors are putting out lists like, hey, you need to read this book or these are the books that are coming out about, you know, race, justice, injustice. But I think many pastors, well-intentioned, are overwhelmed 
with everything that's happening in the news and wanting to resource their people. But in their well-intentionedness, they haven't necessarily read the books. Yeah. So we're hoping so, to help guide some conversations tonight. And just, we selected three, possibly four, depending on time, how we do to walk people through some, some big picture concepts and the most popular books that, that we get inquiries about. Yes. So we thought it'd be good. So let's get Neil on and fire up that Zoom machine. There he is. Hello, hello. Hello, ladies. Hello, Monique, Krista. Good to ah, be here. So good to see you again. Yeah, same here. Thanks for coming on. Let's jump right into it. Now, before we get deep in it, can you just define critical race theory for us? And I know this is going to be a repeat to some and, um, you know, new to others, but especially as we're looking at these three or four books, what does critical race theory have to do and why um, have to do with this and why should we be aware? Right. So uh, critical race theory is a discipline that looks at race from the perspective of power and tries to understand how power has shaped the way we view race and has shaped how racism infects our society today. And it's important to understand critical race theory because these three or four books we'll be studying today are definitely influenced by critical race theory. Now I'm saying that descriptively, not pejoratively, but I think it'll just help us frame the discussion. And now why do I say that? Well, Robin D'Angelo, her website declares that she is a critical race educator. Ibram X. Kendi doesn't say it explicitly, but if you read his book, it's very clear he's drawing on these themes. Um, Jamar Tisby has said on his podcast that he finds critical race theory helpful, and he makes statements that are clearly uh, drawing from that ideology. And then finally, uh, if we look at Be the Bridge, Latasha Morrison just put out a document a few weeks ago for her foundation, Be the Bridge, where they say that they are going to use critical race theory as a helpful framework in their organization. They, they are very clear about that. So it's just, it's underlying a lot of our discussions today. And so it's helpful to understand what it is. That's so good. And, and, yeah. yeah. And just to let people know, like the three books we're going to tackle are white fragility, how to be an anti-racist and color of compromise. And if there's time, we're going to do be the bridge because mm -hmm. we get so many inquiries about that. And we've titled this show kind of navigating the new canon. We call it the new canon. These are the books that a lot of pastors are recommending. They're, they're bestsellers on Amazon. If you go on the Amazon pages um, and they are being listed on a lot of church websites. So what we're going to do is step people through kind of the same questions for each book to try to frame it up this, the same way. And so yes. we selected four or five questions for each book that Neil's going to help us kind of think through and um, give us sort of the big picture on, on that. So maybe we'll just start with Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. Yes. And, uh, but I, before we get started, I do want to say, if you have questions, put them in the, in the chat. Yeah. I am monitoring Facebook and we will also be monitoring YouTube. That's a lot easier to monitor, but I'm specifically on Facebook. So go ahead and um, put your questions there and we will get to those. I, I, I want to make sure that you understand that we are checking that, checking Facebook as well. Yeah. All right. So let's jump in and get to white fragility. White fragility. So here's the Facebook page. So people get or, um, the Amazon page. So people could see it came out in 2018 and, um, it's a bestseller and many workplaces are requiring it. Many churches are recommending it. 
So, Neil, talk to us a little bit about Ms. D'Angelo. What are her credentials to, to write on this subject? And tell us a little bit about her worldview, her, her perspective, her come from. Sure. So she is, according to her website, a critical race and social justice educator. She has a PhD in multicultural education from the University of Washington. And she really is just doing critical, what she calls critical social justice. She's written three uh, published books, all of which I've read. Um, it's White Fragility, Is Everyone Really Equal with Aslan Sensoy? And then What Does It Mean to Be White? So those are her three books. And I've read a number of her peer-reviewed articles as well. She's published peer-reviewed articles the, uh, the phrase white fragility comes from a 2011 article, I believe, in the International Journal of Critical Pedagogy. So that's her, her background. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. And what's the big idea? Well, well oh, first sorry. of all, I don't know if we talked about what, her, what is her religious background? Because so many pastors mm-hmm. are recommending this. Is, it, is, uh, yeah, is I, she a Christian? I looked it up and I couldn't find anything about her personal beliefs. So I just don't know. Um, from- she definitely, in her writing, like I read three hundreds of pages of her work now and uh, maybe even a thousand or so. And she makes no reference to any kind of spirituality. So I just don't okay. know. Okay. From what I've read, I, gosh, I have to look back at, um, at exactly what I read, but she's a universalist. Okay. I actually read something that she was a, or is a universalist and has um, a degree like in from a, like a universalist kind of seminary or something like huh. that. Okay. But yeah, universalism is her. Do you mean Unitarian or Unitarian Universalist? That's a thing. Yes. It, okay. it has. Un- All I know is universalist. I didn't know what a universalist was. <laughs> okay. She's starting she start seminary, seminary on Monday. On Tuesday. Yeah. So yes, I will learn about what a universalist is. <laughs> All right. All right. So Neil, the, our second question is maybe you could talk to us about the book's kind of big idea what is it that she is trying to argue or put forth so her big idea is that all whites are racist and fragile so i'm going to just quote from the book page two socialized into a deeply internalized sense of superiority that we either are unaware or can never admit to ourselves she's saying we white she's white we become highly fragile in our conversations about race We consider a challenge to our racial worldview as a challenge for our very identities as good moral people. That leads to reactions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and withdrawal. And then in page 149, 150, she says, a positive white identity is an impossible goal. White identity is inherently racist. White people do not exist outside the system of white supremacy. So what she does is not pretend that she's not white, because you can't do that, to, to be, pretend to be not white and to be just Irish or Italian, is to be, in her words, colorblind racist. So what does she do? She says, rather, I strive to be less white. To be less white is to be less racially oppressive, page 150. So there are two sort of dual theses are all whites are racist, and then secondly, all whites are fragile, meaning they get defensive when you talk about race and that leads them to deny or to argue or to withdraw from conversation. This isn't one of the questions, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think this is some kind of um, like internalized racism against On like, her part? Yes. Like, do you think that she's that, that, that it, cause I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt. Like maybe she has some kind of internalized racism going on. That's leading her to participate this way. Or is that just too big of a stretch and I just got to carry on? 
it's kind of like a trope out there on Twitter of people that are critics of D'Angelo saying, you know, she's just straight up racist. Like She has some issues that she's working through, some personal demons that she's projecting on everyone else. And I was kind of like, you know, let's be fair and charitable here. We don't know that. But I will say some of the stories that she reports about her own inner experiences are pretty weird. I'll just put it that way. She says things like, I found myself at a table with all black people at work and I was terrified. Like, they're all black and I'm white and what am I going to do? And she talks about how she went to dinner with a black couple and began telling them a story about how racist her own grandmother was and how she's not like that. And then afterwards, she was petrified. She was really upset because she realized that she made them very uncomfortable throughout the evening dinner. I'm like, yeah, no, duh. <laughs> <laughs> But the point is just that I, so I, I'm not going to I don't I don't know what she's like as a person, I, I, but I do think she tells, tells some stories that are unusual. Right. So mm-hmm. so I'm not going to accuse her of being racist or of projecting it, but it does seem that she she says in her own story that she did grow up in a, with racist, you know, relatives who who had racist views. And that presumably and she will say that colored the way that she sees people of color. She says that. So, so what what do you think is helpful about this book? Because I mean, this book is being widely recommended and it's on bestseller list, even required now in some yeah. workplaces. People are writing to us; their employers are requiring it. Some people on church staffs are writing to us saying that uh, they're required reading. So, what what do you see about this book that could be helpful? So it's a real struggle for me to find things that are actually helpful in this book, because I think Christians tend to read this book through a Christian worldview, and that leads them to actually misinterpret what she's saying. So they come, I've seen people say things like, all she's saying is that we should be humble when talking about race. And I'm scratching my head and saying, did you read the book? Because she's not saying that. She doesn't mm-hmm. say that, oh, we should just be humble. She's saying that you are racist, period. And if you deny that you're racist, it's because you're fragile. And that fragility is part of your racism. That's what she's saying over and over and over again. And if you read her other peer-reviewed work, she's just very clear. She says that in one of her books called, um, it's called the, let me look it up. Uh, It's called the Beyond the Face of Race, Emo Cognitive Explorations of a White Neurosis and Racial Cray-Cray. That's the title of this peer-reviewed paper. And she says things like, raising white children to be white is a form of child abuse. Oh, wow. That's so sad. Now, again, now, she's redefined those words in unusual ways, but she is really saying that the way that white people raise their children, in other words, to the way they naturally raise their children, the way to think about race, that is a form of child abuse that leads to white neurosis and racial cray-cray. So I think Christians need to just reread the book and just read her as she actually presents herself, not, not reinterpreting her through your own lens. Mm-hmm. And, and so now could I step back and say, well, can I take anything from the book, even if she didn't necessarily intend it that way? Well, yeah, I would say, does white fragility exist? Well, in one sense, because what she's really talking about is human fragility. We're all fragile. We're all defensive. We all feel like we get attacked. We want to defend ourselves. That That's what everybody. Monique's been saying. This is what I've been saying. Oh, there you go. See, this great is what pe- 
This is what I've been saying. She's talking about human emotions. You walk up to me and you call me out my name and you tell me I'm a racist and you're going to get all of it. Right. And that's, is that like a deep insight that we have to pay $12 to Amazon to get? No, it's like you in five seconds, we're all fragile. We're all defensive. We all rationalize our sin and we're all sinners. But I just told you that for free and it took me 10 seconds. I, I, that's not all that she means. She's viewing reality through a very different lens than the one that we're viewing reality through. So, well, if you want to go on the road, we can go on the road and charge everybody $12. I ain't mad at you. (laughs) I I think she's making it quite a bit more than $12. Right. This is, I'm like, we trying to, we trying to give you some word for free, y'all. This is free (laughs) word. This is good stuff. Okay. Um, is there anything that you, and I know there is. <laughs> what would you say are like the main contradictions between this book and the Christian worldview? Yeah, there are just so many. Uh, you can read my book reviews and my um, just quotes from her own writing. I don't even comment on some of the I just put the quotes out there because, like they said, they're so cray cray. Um, the first big problem is that, like many critical race theorists, she doesn't view racism primarily as a sin, but as a system. So she would say all whites are socialized into a racist system and therefore have deeply racist patterns, deeply racist behaviors, a deeply racist worldview. They are racist, period. But in chapter five, she has an entire chapter called Beyond the Good Bad Binary, where she says, look, the problem is we still think that being racist is bad. It's not that we can't help it. It's not bad. We can't help it. We're all racist. So we have to move beyond this either good equals not racist, bad equals racist binary, and see that we're all on the spectrum. And once we do that, we'll see that racism is really just a thing we can't control, but we can fight against it. We're responsible to unlearn our racist patterns and commit ourselves to a lifelong process of adopting an anti-racist identity. But at no point do we just move beyond that. She says, like, I'm still struggling to not be racist. And it's going to be a lifetime process to be not racist. Here's the thing. So one is she's talking about racism like like it's original sin. It's the stain on your soul. And but but the funny thing is, she doesn't consider you to be guilty for it. Whereas Christians would say, actually, you know, racism is primarily a sin. And so you need to repent and turn to Jesus and ask for cleansing. But she says like sin, it's everywhere, and it's in it's in you all the time, but you're not responsible for it. You're not guilty for it, and yet you're now compelled to spend your whole life trying to wash out that damn spot, right? That's it, you know. So it's it's but I think fundamentally, Christians should say no. Racism is a sin. It's a sort of partiality towards one's own, you know, quote unquote race. Races are social constructs, but whatever. But we should we would see racism as a sin, and also, of course, that's because that's why. Anyone can be racist. Whites can be racist. Blacks can be racist. Asians can be racist because it's not about power or systems. It's about sin. So that's one big problem with her view of uh, all of these issues. Another one is that she views being an oppressor or an oppressed person as really part of your of who you are. You simply are an oppressor. She says this much more in her other books, like, is everyone really equal? But whites and men and heterosexuals and the rich, by definition, by their the virtue of being in an oppressor group, are oppressors, period. And people of color, women, LGBTQ people, 
the poor. They are oppressed, period. So even people like very, very wealthy, powerful black women are oppressed, period. So, and there are a number of problems with that, but the big one would be how do you think about church? Christians cannot walk into a church and look at brothers and sisters in Christ and say, oppressor, 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 oppressed, oppressed, oppressor, oppressed. No, I'm just, we can't do that. This is yeah. this Once is again, right here, our right girl has here. Been this is what I've been saying. I am not holy enough to come to church and sit next to you knowing you're my oppressor. We're not going for tea, coffee, <laughs> Chipotle. I'm not going to lunch with you if I have to sit next to you and you're my oppressor. Like, but that's the only option. It's we're going to come in and have like some kind of oppressed oppressor little room. We'll get to that. It, it seems we'll like it would. Yeah. It, it seems like it would fundamentally ruin Christian unity. Like, you, oh yeah, no, there's you, no unity. How do you get there? You we'll don't. get to that in the le- the last two books, I think. But yeah, that's another that's another third point here is that it it leads to disunity and real paranoia, and it makes people miserable. So, for example, on page eighty to eighty one, she says this is incredible. But I think she's take her for her at her words. We take her at her words. Whites see their friendship with blacks as proof that they are on the non-racist side of the good-bad binary. Yet cross-racial friendships do not block out the dynamics of racism in the society at large, and these dynamics continue unabated. Racism invariably manifests itself within cross-racial friendships as well. Racism cannot be absent from your friendship. No cross-racial relationship is free from the dynamics of racism in the society. And that, that last sentence was interesting because she went from saying friendship to relationship. I'm thinking, what about an interracial married couple, uh, right? Because it, what she's saying here is you cannot, you think your relationship is racism free, but it is not. It is everywhere. Elsewhere, she says, the question is not, did racism take place, but how did racism manifest in this particular context? Mm-hmm. It is everywhere and in your friendship. So you talk about, well, how would a person of color, if they truly believe that, how would they view their white friends? Because mm-hmm. according to D'Angelo, every action mm-hmm. the white person performs is a way for them to maintain their racial dominance, to recover what she calls their racial equilibrium. Yep. This is insanity. I mean, you would walk around being utterly paranoid and bitter and angry. Like you said, Monique, the people you're sitting next to, they claim to love you and be your brother in Christ, but they're they're just trying to maintain their dominance over you all the time, every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know what? <laughs> I feel like we could end the show right now <laughs> because this is what I've been saying. But people are like, no, no, she don't mean it like that. No, you should give it another try. Give it another try. <laughs> <laughs> No. You got to read. So I said, I, people read this book and they just, I think they're trying to be charitable. But my point is that you, if you read, I've read all three of her books and like six of her peer reviewed papers. She really means what she says. Yes. This, yes. This, so, this is really it. And she really, like she really in white fragility lists out basic emotions. Like she starts the book with her being in a meeting and you know, someone like in the meeting or something like that is upset or asks questions and she doesn't understand like, well, why can't, why aren't you seeing this too? Like you, it, it's because you're fragile. You're asking yeah. questions because you're fragile. And I'm just like, no, he's asking questions because he's a human. Cause <laughs> yeah. nobody just wants to be all 
racisty. I mean, unless you do, <laughs> and then that's a problem. But yeah, it, is, oh, oh no, this isn't on our list. But I'm curious: is this book like really well researched, documented, and noted with lots of peer reviewed articles to out. to prove her her thesis? I mean, no. I mean, there's virtually no empirical data behind her claims, like at all. Now, do people have implicit biases? Yeah, there's some studies on that. Sure. Now, and the, the I, by the way, the implicit association test is questionable. If you guys have heard of the IAT, but there are studies that you show. Yeah, we have these unconscious biases. Are some people fragile about race? Sure. Are some whites fragile about race? Of course. So some people really are fragile in the sense she describes it. In other words, you try to talk about anything racial, like literally, and they don't want to talk about it. They want to shut you down. So that's a real phenomenon. But look, I'll be honest, there are black people, Asian people, Hispanic people who who have the same reaction. And so like like Monique said, it's a human thing and we're all susceptible to it. And so I think, but she does not see it that way so that's mm-hmm. not what she's saying okay let's go on to oh goodness gracious let's go on to how to be an anti-racist so we've got the amazon thing here uh and the author here is ibrahim x kendi and also a bestseller on amazon five stars you can see seven thousand ratings this book gets so much play so we've had a lot of inquiries about this book and many pastors are recommending it. Uh, many educators are writing to us saying that they are being required to read this book. Last week on the show, we had Carrie Smith on. We talked a little bit about uh, Kendi's desire for an anti-racist constitutional amendment. Mm-hmm. Yep. So walk us through Kendi's book. Tell us a little bit about his credentials and what his point of view is, his worldview. So he has an African, a study, a PhD in African-American studies from Temple. Um, his parents were, at least they were originally evangelical Christians. They became Christians through InterVarsity. And then in his, actually in that, in this book, he details how his, both of his parents sort of moved from evangelical Christianity. He's not entirely clear. And I'm not sure he's entirely fair either, but he claims that they moved towards black liberation theology. So I don't know where his parents are now. And he claims to be a secular. He says, I'm not a Christian. So be clear on that. Um, he does say something interesting at the end of his book, which I'll talk about later. But, uh, but, he, so, but he's not a Christian. He says that. He's a secular person. And the big idea of how to be an anti-racist is that everyone is either racist or anti-racist. And you can actually be both at different times in different ways. But there's a binary. Racist or anti-racist, and to be an anti-racist is to actively dismantle racist policies to, in order to end racism. That is what anti-racism means. It's actively dismantle these systems and structures which produce racial inequity, a technical term there. But let me just quote again from him, so you can't argue that I'm making this up. This is in page 9 and 10. He says, there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. The opposite of racist isn't not racist. It is anti-racist. What's the difference? One endorses either the idea of racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. One either believes that problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist 
or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. This is, this is great. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. The language of colorblindness, like the language of not racist, is a mask to hide racism. So he's, again, I really, I really appreciate how critical race theorists tend to be very clear they're not like these mm-hmm. postmodern authors. You, the, the language is so convoluted. It doesn't make any sense. The sentences are like 80 words long. Mm-hmm. Critical race theorists, uh, for various reasons, tend to be very straightforward. They repeat things multiple times. So Candy is very clear. You're either a racist or you're an anti-racist where he's going to pour meaning into what an anti-racist is. But if you're like, I'm not that, the other option, the only other option is racist. Okay, so that's the big idea. Yes, and I, I agree with you. I love it because of the clarity. Like, I don't have to ask questions. Mm. I said what I said. That That's the stand. <laughs> it's like, I said what I said. Did you not hear me? But people, I feel like they don't want to hear. They well, come obviously, on our, they, he didn't mean yeah, it. Yeah, they come on our page all the time, and I'm they're like, like, that's not what he means. Why don't that's- you believe it? <laughs> My mother would say, you must not believe fat meat is greasy. I still don't really know what that means today, but somewhere around here, I feel like that is applicable. You don't believe what people are putting right before you. Like, they they are basically just saying, I said what I said. You don't like it, yeah. that's your business. You are racist. But I still said what I said. How are you going to write in to somebody and now maybe maybe they don't come your way? I don't know why. I'm going to start forwarding you the letters. But people come in and they be like, he didn't mean that when he when he obviously was just displaying his hurt and trying to say no he wasn't he wasn't trying to say nothing he said what he said oh come on cousin I mean, neil come the, through d'angelo especially i find her clarity admirable so her yes. books they have glossaries of terms they define they're like what does this term mean oh look it up with the glossary she has call out boxes in her i just finished her book how to uh what does it mean to be white and she'll have like she'll say something in the text then she'll call it out and repeat the same words then like literally 10 pages later she'll say remember now and have the same box and yes. say, don't forget and she'll uh-huh. say it again so it's it's not and this is a and this is a published 300 page book right it's not like a slip up this is very clear and I also read his earlier work, Stamp from the Beginning, uh-huh. where these same ideas, not entirely, but the same ideas are there too. So, and he's been interviewed by like Ezra Klein, you know, he's been on TV shows. He really believes these ideas. He's yes. very clear. So anyway. So yeah. what do you think, if if you were to look at Kendi's book, what would you see as being helpful? What What could you... Don't look, I, don't, don't look at me. Don't look at me like I need that. to sit back and see this one myself. <laughs> don't, don't look at me like that. I'm trying to. I, I was like, I thought we was going to skip that question, but go ahead. <laughs> Let me see what we got. <laughs> what can be see. helpful? Yeah, again, I'm struggling here because I think that if you take these books as they're intended to be taken, then there's not, there's very little that's helpful. So in other words, if I said, well, here are the things that I took away from the book as a Christian and I repeated them. If Kendi were on air with me, he'd be like, I didn't, I don't believe that. <laughs> like if, if I read D'Angelo's book and said, what I took away is that I need to be more humble about race. She would say, I didn't say that. Where are you getting that? I don't believe that. That's not what I said. So I want to be careful not to take, take away things from this book that they wouldn't themselves affirm. So 
I mean, I don't know. I guess some of the data about racial inequalities are true. Racial disparities. I mean, they're just it's the data. But it's important to realize that in this entire way of thinking, critical race theory tends to see disparities as discrimination. So it's actually Kendi says on page 11 of his book, Stamp from the Beginning, he says to be an anti-racist, to believe in racial equality is to realize that all racial disparities globally are solely due to racial discrimination. Let me say that again. I should, I almost memorized that. I'm not sure it's word for word, but he says this idea clearly, and you look, I have the quote on my website. All racial disparities globally are solely due to racial discrimination. If you believe that racial disparities are due to both discrimination and other factors and any other factors, he would call you an assimilationist racist. So he has two kinds of racist, segregationist racist, assimilationist racist, and anti-racist. And to claim that disparities are due to anything, any more, so both discrimination and anything else, that would make you an assimilationist racist. So anyway, so he does include data about disparities and by definition in his mind, Disparities equal discrimination, and to deny that is to be a racist. Uh, so, so we, so that, but, but, but that said, the data he presents is probably is true. It's just data that's out there. There are disparities. They're they're often quite large, um, and as Christians, we should think through those and and think about the causes. And certainly, I would affirm that absolutely part of the disparities are due to discrimination. But obviously, and this is where I skip ahead to my criticism, just. If you think for half a second about that, that kind of claim, it just completely crumbles. The idea that it's all discrimination. For example, there are uh, 75% of the NBA players are black. There's a tremendous racial disparity in the race of the NBA players. Is that, are you really going to believe that that is due to discrimination, pro-black discrimination by NBA owners? No, I don't think that's true. No one thinks that's true. Another example that would be that uh, Indian Americans, uh, their median household income is over $100,000 a year for Indian Americans. That's a huge racial disparity there, uh, or it's just an ethnic disparity. But are you really going to believe that Indian Americans make that much money because of discrimination in favor of Indian Americans? So that, and People like Coleman Hughes have pointed that out over and over to Kendi. Like that, that claim, it's literally, it's ludicrous, but he keeps making it. So I don't know what you want to do with that. I mean, he doesn't really engage with, in debate, public debate with people who disagree with him, but he keeps saying these things, and I think they're just obviously false. Um, so I, I skipped ahead to critique, but. No, that's go. good. No, yeah. And I, I think, too, I'd like to have you really drive home the point that. For Kendi, in his his framework, being part of the endeavor of being an anti-racist also involves advocacy for equity for other oppressed groups. And so when Christians go down this path thinking, oh, being an anti-racist means I don't want to be a racist. They they don't really understand the technical definition for it, but they don't realize how it's hooked to all of these other aspects of critical theory and and And, when you're speaking out and using your voice it it like you said it 
it actually is almost like a train. Like it's attached to everything else. Yeah. And he would, if you said, well, anti-racism just means not racist, right? He'd be like, wrong, not racist is racist. Right. So it's just so, yeah, people don't know what's being said exactly. So it's important to understand this is entire, this is technical language you're using. When you say things like white privilege, white fragility, anti-racism, you're using technical terms, whether you know it or not. It'd be like talking about justification or sanctification or the Trinity, we can't just throw those words around as if they've, you know, this mean whatever we want them to mean. They have meanings and you have to be aware of what you're saying when you use those terms. So, uh, yeah, what Krista said was uh, critical race theory. And I can give you quotes if you want, but critical race theory as a discipline believes that different forms of oppression are interlocking and mutually constructing. So the phrase that they use going back to 1970 is interlocking systems of oppression. So they would see racism, sexism, heterosexism, transphobia, classism, ableism as all intertwined and inextricable. And so Kennedy completely buys into that framework. So he says in his book, this is in, on page 159, 189, and 197, here's just some quotes. He says things like this, anti-racist policies cannot eliminate class racism without anti-capitalism policies. Anti-capitalism cannot eliminate class racism without anti-racism. To truly be anti-racist is to be feminist. To truly be feminist is to be anti-racist. We cannot be anti-racist if we are homophobic or transphobic. To be queer anti-racist is to understand the privileges of my cisgender, my masculinity, my heterosexuality, and their intersections. Mm-hmm. So, I read what he is saying, folks. He says, you say, I'm, well, I'm anti-racist, but I don't really buy into all that. No, stop. <laughs> Time out. He says, you cannot be anti-racist. It's not how this works. Yeah. It, 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 I kind of, it, for Christians, it'd be like saying, you know, I'd like to be uh, pro-life, but I'm, so I'm going to oppose euthanasia, but I'm not going to oppose abortion. You're like, that's not how pro-life works. Yeah. <laughs> or I want to be a Presbyterian, but, and so I, I want to believe in Jesus, but I don't want to baptize my infants. You're like, do you understand what Presbyterianism means? There's a whole theology behind why I'm not Presbyterian, but I'm just saying that, but you can't say I'm going to be Presbyterian but I'm, I'm going to believe this, but not this and this, but not this. When, when they're saying, no, you can't do that. You can be something else, but you can't be Presbyterian. Right. The same way he's saying you cannot be anti-racist. Now you'd say, well, well, why should he define anti-racism? Well, that's a question and, in the chat, yeah. actually, Neil, is, is anti-racism, is that a term that was invented by Kendi? Uh, no, no, this goes back before Kendi. I'm not okay. sure you coined the term anti-racism. But that said, at the very least, you have to acknowledge that when people today use that term, this is like a number one Amazon bestseller, number two Amazon bestseller. This is out there. This is the title is literally how to be an anti-racist. You can't uh, you can't act like, well, that's just him. And it's more than that. Critical race theory as a discipline says exactly the same thing. Uh, I'll, I'll just read a quote for you from uh, Har- Har- uh, it's Harper, Patton, and Wooden. They say, um, critical race theory critiques claims that one can fight racism without paying attention to sexism, 
homophobia, economic exploitation, and other forms of oppression or injustice. That's three critical race theorists summarizing one of the core tenets of critical race mm-hmm. theory. So, and this is this is not like just candy or just wooden or just coffee kumasi or just this is what they believe. And so, at the very least, I would urge Christians to not throw this term around as if it just means nothing. It means something. You better look up what it means before you use it. Uh, And the example that I like to use is the phrase uh, reproductive justice. You say, well, I'm going to use that phrase in this way. Well, okay, but you realize that the 99% of the other, the rest of the United States uses that phrase in a particular way. So whether or not you define it differently than they do it will hinder your communication if you use that phrase and don't s- say something like, oh, I don't mean I'm pro-choice. They'll be like, well, then what, what on earth do you mean? Because that's how I use the term. Yeah. In the same way, don't use these technical terms and then import random meanings of your own devising to them. Use them. I mean, communication is about being clear, helping them to understand what you mean. And so if you don't mean that you believe in interlocking systems of oppression, then maybe don't use that phrase. Pick a, pick a phrase like, well, I reject, I reject racial prejudice. Now, they'll immediately tell you that's not what we mean. Well, good. At least you've communicated yourself clearly because they're saying now, well, it's not what I believe about, about anti-racism. Uh, you've, now you've been effective in telling them what you actually believe. And that's why they're challenging you. So we're going to go to a couple of questions here, and then we're going to move into the Christian books. So we've yeah. covered two of the kind of secular books, and um, we want to go to Barbara's question. She she was wondering if either of you would like to speculate a bit about why do ministers, do you think, feel like these books are helpful? Why are they putting them on so many resource lists? Mm, mm, mm. Oh, boy. Uh Monique, you want to take that one? <laughs> Neil, <laughs> I, see, I, I see how it is. I, I think I'm going on vacation right now. I'm going to go ahead and throw <laughs> so, you under the bus, Monique. Go ahead. Go here, for it. Here it is. Um, as, as graciously as I can, I believe that... I don't think uh, a lot of them have read them. I don't think that... No, I don't think that many pastors have read these books. Um, I also... I think that many pastors want to resource their people. And these are the books that... Other pastors are putting out that are, you know, popular on all kind of book lists and things like that. So they're like, well, this must be it. So here, why don't you read this before they've actually read it? Now, that's one thought in my brain. The other thought is, is that they actually have a belief in critical theory, critical race theory that maybe they haven't expressed yet. Maybe this is a worldview that they actually hold on to or see some kind of benefit from, even if they don't adopt the entire critical race theory or critical theory, critical social theory, um, you know, framework. Maybe there are parts of it that they actually believe in. So they're saying, hey, you know, you can actually benefit from this. And, and you know, so you should read this without understanding truly um the the mess and the t- entanglements that are happening as you put these books forward. Um, about a year ago, we did a show with Mike Gurney on how many pastors are actually not going to seminary. And to me, without 
seminary education, you aren't really able to. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken. I'm just getting into seminary, but I don't know how well you're able to exegete the scripture and actually put forth um, like a proper view of scripture and doctrine. You know, so if that's missing, you might say, well, you know, hey, they have this verse over here in Micah and they have this verse over here in Corinthians. And so when we put these two things together, you get white fragility. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, you put these two things together and you have, you know, how to be an anti-racist. I would say, hold on. I don't think that that's where we're at. But if you don't properly, if you're not properly trained in these things, then, you know, this is this is possibly what you could get. So I don't know. Okay. That's my thought. So I'll All offer right. one other explanation. I'll actually dovetail with a final point I want to make about Kendi's book, which is that the analogy is often being used as well. We just want people to eat the meat and spit out the bones in these books. And I say that they're making two big assumptions here. Number one is you're assuming that your congregants have enough discernment and understanding of these issues to recognize and distinguish meat from bone, right? You're assuming that. Why think that? I think a lot of Christians and even pastors, these ideas are, you have to do a lot of reading to understand where these ideas are coming from. And I don't, I don't think that our people are equipped to recognize and tell what is meat and what is bone. The other thing I would say is that that analogy is wrong. The better way to view these books is as uh, not meat and bone, but as poisoned meat. You don't say, eat the meat and spit out the poison. You can't. The poison is in the meat. And so that's what you're actually handing people is not meat and bone, but poisoned meat that they can't possibly take anything out of without getting a little bit of poison too. So, and uh, let me put, this is the last point. To Kendi, he said, what is his worldview? I would argue that anti-racism is his religion. Now that's actually a fairly common theme among anti-racists and critical race theorists. They say they believe that it's an identity for them. I can give you quotes for that at that. Let me just tell you from Kendi's book, pages 14 through 17, he talks about how his parents became Christians through InterVarsity and they joined the Black Power Movement. They began reading the work of James Cone. And um, for them, so Cone actually talked to Kendi's father and said, a Christian is one who is striving for liberation. And Kendi writes, receiving this definition was a revolutionary moment in dad's life. Ma had her own similar revelation in her black student union that Christianity was about struggle and liberation. My parents now had separately arrived at a creed with which to shape their lives to be the type of Christians that Jesus the revolutionary inspired them to be. Now listen, this is crucial. So his parents, and, and, his, and I'm not sure that Kendi is necessarily being accurate here. This is his story, but that's his interpretation. But here's what he says. This new definition of the Christian life became the creed that grounded my parents' lives and the lives of their children. I cannot disconnect my parents' religious strivings to be Christian from my own secular striving to be an anti-racist. Oh, Listen to that last line again. Mm-hmm. Anti-racism fills the same needs and urges and strivings that his parents' liberation, I mean, in his mind, liberation theology fulfilled. He is thinking of this as a religion. So when you ask what's his worldview, I would argue anti-racism is his worldview, again, yeah. in his own account. So anyway, that, 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 I want to ask pastors, 
you say, well, they can, our congregants can read these books and eat the meat and spit out the moans. Would you dream of handing people like a Buddhist book on meditation and saying, read it and take what's helpful and leave the rest? Or, you know, would you, would you hand, would I hand my 11 year old son the God delusion and say, there's some good stuff in there. Look real hard. You'll find it. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't. And if I, if I if I don't see the analogy to this book, I think you have to live really a little bit more carefully. Um, another question on the chat uh, from Jamie. He's wanting to know, are there any good debates out there uh, around this topic? Like, are any of these authors debating people that disagree with them? Does Robin DiAngelo have any good YouTube debates or where people okay. kind of talk these things through? I have not seen Candy or D'Angelo debate at all with anyone. And I have heard people say that they decline to debate with anyone. Like, so that I have not seen any at all. And I have, I have heard that, yeah, they don't do that. Okay. Um, and what I, so yeah. And I have personally found that when I have tried to offer to dialogue with people, just dialogue, um, about these topics, they decline. It is very hard to convince people to dialogue about these topics in, in a setting where you're going to disagree, not debating, just dialoguing, but it is hard. And I, part of that is it's our polarized culture, I think, but there, I think there also are deeper reasons there that they do shy away from discussion. But okay. I, I won't, I won't speculate too much, but, it, I, but yeah, the, the short answer is no. You okay. Cause they people. were looking and they, yeah, they were having no, difficulty finding things. I All think right. you're not going to find them. Okay. So let, now let's kind of shift gears here and go into the two Christian books. Hopefully we have time for both of them. Uh, let's start with the color of compromise by Jamar Tisby. And uh, let's get into that a little bit because uh, we get many, many people writing into the ministry, wanting to know about this book. Their pastor's recommending this book. This one and Be the Bridge, probably the, the top two that pastors seem to be recommending. So let's just start back with our questions. Can you tell us a little bit about Mr. Tisby and his credentials to write on this subject and what kind of his come from is? So he has a bachelor's from Notre Dame, an MDiv from a Reformed Theological Seminary, and he's in a PhD program right now at the University of Mississippi. And so he's a Christian and a, I guess it would be a Reformed Christian. Um, that's, so that's his background. And is, he is studying history in his PhD program right now. Okay. So the book itself, maybe give us kind of an orientation to the book's big idea and, and what Mr. Tisby is trying to, to argue. Yeah. So the big idea of the book is that Christians have a choice between complicit Christianity, complicit with racism and courageous Christianity, which confronts racism. So again, I'll just read a paragraph from his book. Progress is possible, but we must learn to discern the difference between complicit Christianity and courageous Christianity. Complicit Christianity forfeits its moral authority by devaluing the image of God in people of color. Like a ship that is a cracked hull and is taking on water, Christianity has run aground on the rocks of racism and threatens to capsize. It has lost its integrity. By contrast, courageous Christianity embraces racial and ethnic diversity. It stands against any person, policy, or practice that would dim the glory of God reflected in the life of human beings from every tribe and tongue. 
These words are a call to abandon complicit Christianity and move towards courageous Christianity. So I think it pretty clearly summarizes the one-sentence definition. It's a call to move from complicit Christianity, complicit with racism, to courageous Christianity, which confronts racism. That's the big idea. Now, what would you say would be the difference between being, like, not racist and anti-racist? You know, to me, to me, it sounds very similar. Yeah, so he actually says that he's calling, so he does admit of a third category. Uh, he does say that he is calling Christians from the non-racist category to the anti-racist category. Now, presumably, he would define anti-racism differently than Kendi would, but he would also define it as an active commitment to dismantling the systems and structures which promote racism. So he would still define it in terms of systems and structures, and then also actively, and it's not, it's, that's a big difference. Passive anti-racism, according to D'Angelo, does not exist as a category. To be an anti-racist is to be actively doing something to dismantle these racist systems, period. So he would say that to be non-racist, meaning you just treat everyone in a colorblind fashion, you, you know, you're friends with people of color, you, you, you don't, you're not prejudiced, that would be the non-racist category. But he's calling Christians to move out of that category into being actively anti-racist. So the, from what I understand, and I have not read this book yet, I plan to, but Tisby is basically looking at a look at America's history and trying to make the case that racism has been embedded in America's history from the beginning and continues that way, that mm-hmm. racism uh, never goes away. It just changes form. Yes. And yeah, he- so that to me kind of sounds like it's somewhat similar to a critical race theory idea. Yes. Um, so the book, let me see the positives. The, the book, the first nine chapters uh, are just a history, like a lot of primary sources of the history of race and racism and the church's role in both. And I would actually say that chapters one through nine, you know, they're, they're kind of one-sided, but not very much, frankly, because we do, as a country, have a pretty horrifying racial history. We just do. We have to own that. And so it's going to, so sure, he doesn't really mention a lot of stuff about like the Underground Railroad, which had stops in churches and the abolitionists. He doesn't mention that a lot, but I can't really fault him because our history is lopsided, right? So, okay, so I think that's, you could say, oh, well, there should be more about the good the church did, but I think it's generally, it is going to seem like it's favoring the racism of our past because our country was very racist. And you can, the, the primary sources he gives you are sometimes shocking about lynching stories that are in uh, just true stories about our nation's past. So that's actually Sammy Say, if you know who Sammy, I know you know, you know Sammy Say, who is also very opposed to critical race theory. He said the same thing in his review. He said, you know, chapters one through nine were basically good. Like, you know, they're not objectionable. But Monique, what you said, uh, not Monique, uh, Krista, what you said is exactly the chapters 10 and 11, when he starts talking about more recent history, since like the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, that's when he draws a connection between our historical racism, which I think no one should deny. We should, we should not try to shy away or hide from the fact that our country was deeply racist by law, de jure, in our, on the books. But 
he would connect that to modern day times very directly. And uh, so, for example, the, um, the statement, uh, racism changes over time, it never goes away, it just adapts. That phrase is repeated on page 19, 110, 154, 155, 160, and 171. Wow. So it really is a theme that, that and that, that, by the way, that is absolutely the same theme, uh, a major theme within critical race theory. It's, it is one of the main things they say is that racism, uh, it, it has adapted, it has evolved, it has changed, but it's still there and it's still enforcing the same racial hierarchy, even as it did under Jim Crow. The laws are off the books, but the systems are still there and they still, in Bonilla Silva's words, they are just as effective as at enforcing this racial hierarchy in the United States today as they were in 1960, 1950. Um, so yeah, that, that's a major, I'll talk about that in a bit, but that's a major issue there because he tends to see this co basic qualitative continuity between the present and the past. And right off the bat, you have to say that, well, that's not, you can't assume that. So the example that I like to use is say the treatment of women or the treatment of Jewish people. I mean, literally a hundred years ago, my alma mater is Princeton. But there was a very active, active anti-Jewish sentiment at Princeton, like on the books, in the policies. They had quotas about how many Jews could get in to the school. They created the eating club system at Princeton so that people could get away from Jews and, and eat away from Jewish students, right? So it was really anti-Semitic, okay? A hundred years later, can you assume, I'm sure that, I'm sure there's anti-Semitism at Princeton like there is everywhere, right? But... Do, do you really believe that there's the same kind of anti-Semitism at Princeton today as there was in 1920? You can't assume that. You have to make the argument that's true. Or the treatment of women. I mean, you have you know, Christian writers, theologians, writing things and borrowing from the Greeks saying, you know, women are basically deformed, not deformed men, but they're, 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 the men are natural, they're right, and then women are modifications of the male, and women are inferior You'll have them saying things like that, and you'll have laws on the books. Women can't vote. Women can't inherit property. But then, are you really going to say that it's the same patriarchal system exists today as existed 100, 200, 500 years ago? You can't assume that. You have to actually give evidence that's the case. And I think the evidence points in the other directions, that we have changed dramatically with respect to the way we view race, the way we expect to review gender, the review, say, Jew, Jewish people. So, again, I think he has to argue for that claim, and instead he simply assumes it's true, which I think is the problem. So, I guess, would you say, based on your knowledge of Tisby's book, I know he has another book coming out, um, and following him on Twitter and trying to get more of a fully orbed, um, understanding of his view, would you say that he's been influenced by critical race theory or that it's, this is fairly solidly Christian, like help me uh, uh, kind of orient myself to, you know, how his worldview comes through the book. Yeah. So the, the, well, there's the book and then there's Jamar Tisby's comments elsewhere. Um, yes. He has said on his podcast that he does find critical race theory helpful. Um, he says, uh, so when the SBC published, uh, uh, they, they 
adopted the resolution number nine on critical race theory and intersectionality, which actually interestingly got criticism from both sides, both people that didn't like it and from the, on the left and the right, people didn't like it. The interesting thing is that Tisby viewed that resolution as, uh, as bad because he said it basically it allowed Christians who were opposed to critical race theory to, to, to drive the discussion. He says in his mind, I'm quoting from him from his uh, podcast he did, says this, critical race theory, this is a made-up problem. From what I've seen, a group of mostly white, mostly male Christians decided that CRT was becoming a problem in their circles, and they created a sufficient enough stink in blog posts, on Twitter, on podcasts, and at conferences to make people sit up and listen. It's a, dist- a distraction. And he said, now, why would they do that? This is what he says. Now, here's what I think the real issue is. White fragility. Mm. Yeah, I said it. I think what had happened was some Christians, including myself, started using words associated with the social sciences, such as white fragility, white supremacy, intersectionality, power, in other words. So some people heard this and thought the enemy is within the gate. To arms, to arms. Speaking for myself, I find these terms helpful. So the funny thing is that he said it's not really an issue, but then he says that actually, yes, indeed, we are using terms like white fragility, which were coined by critical race theory, which he realizes, yes, they are critical race theory, and he finds them helpful. So it's a a little bit, and as I just talked about, white fragility, the book at least, is really, really bad and dangerous. Um, And there have been other statements that he's made uh, on Twitter that clearly, I'll give one example. Someone. I'll, actually, I won't give that example, but there are other places where he has said things that pretty clearly reflect some of the dangerous assumptions of critical race theory. Now, does that come through in the book? Not really. Um, so I don't want to say that this book is just steeped in critical race theory, but I will point out two problems, um, with the, or three, with the book. One is that the way it's framed from the outset is is problematic so here's what he says the people who will reject this book will level several common objections what stands out about these complaints is not their originality or their persuasiveness but their ubiquity throughout history the same arguments that perpetuated racial inequality in decades past get recycled in the present day critics will claim that a marxist communist ideology underlies all the talk about racial equality. They will assert that the historical facts are wrong or have been misinterpreted. They will charge that this discussion of race is somehow abandoning the gospel and replacing it with problematic calls for, quote, social justice, end quote. After reading just a few chapters, these arguments will sound familiar. These arguments have been used throughout American church's history to deny or defend racism. Now, that's how he's framed people objecting to the book. But here's the problem. Are there other motivations a Christian could possibly have to object to a book? Well, yeah, you might think it's just wrong, right? You, you, can't, you can't begin the, t- the discussion of your book by saying, now, if you object to this book, it sounds just like those terrible racists from the Jim Crow era. The same kind of argument. They sound so familiar. That's not a good way to preempt any critique of your book. You have to be 
willing to say, I'm open to hearing critiques based on reason or scripture or evidence. I'm not going to simply imply that they are just the same kind of arguments that were leveled against Martin Luther King by racist Southerners. That's kind of poisoning the well. Um, so that, that framing, that's page 21. That's the beginning of his book. And, and so that's a problem because we have to be willing to be open to critique and not poison the well and impute motives to our critics. Um, the second thing I talked about a little bit was how he, how he views complicity and racism as this evolution, how racism adapts. And in the same way, in his mind, complicity just adapts. Now listen to this statement on page 191. He says, Christian complicity with racism in the 21st century looks different than complicity with racism in the past. It looks like Christians responding to Black Lives Matter with the phrase, all lives matter. It looks like Christians consistently supporting a president whose racism has been on display for decades. It looks like Christians telling black people and their allies that their attempts to bring up racial concerns are, quote, divisive. It looks like conversations on race that focus on individual relationships and are unwilling to discuss systemic solutions. Perhaps Christian complicity in racism has not changed much after all. Now think about that last sentence. He's saying complicity in the past, meaning in antebellum South when there was slavery, under the black codes, during Jim Crow, right? That complicity, where Christians were complicit with racism, slave chattel slavery, kidnapping, man-stealing people from their homes, chaining them to a slave ship, dragging them to their continent, whipping them, that complicity in the past, complicity under Jim Crow, complicity in lynching, that complicity, he's been talking about it the entire book, it's also complicity, the complicity today is things like saying all lives matter. And perhaps Christian, he concludes by saying, perhaps Christian complicity in racism has not changed much after all. Now think about that. Is a person, forget chattel slavery even, is a person who objected to, say, the civil rights movement and did not think we should, or, or, or say before that, who did not support uh, black people's right to vote, or who, who approved of lynching, is that complicit, or, or at least was indifferent to it, they don't really care about lynching, is that complicity the same kind of thing as saying all lives matter? And the answer is not remotely, not remotely. So to, to claim that there's qualitatively no difference between saying all lives matter and being indifferent to slavery is really not true at all. And actually, I would argue it's a terrible way to think about race. And again, that would I would argue it's very much in line with his idea that racism just adapts, just like racism adapts doesn't get we don't get rid of it it just changes form in the same way he's saying complicity just adapts but i think it's actually very bad and harmful to believe that a christian who says all lives matter has the same complicity in racism as a christian who was indifferent to lynching or slavery that you might you might argue that they they shouldn't say all lives matter okay that's fair enough but saying that they're, they're doing the same thing as a Christian 
who was approving of lynching. <laughs> That's really wrong. So, and that, and that I would argue that actually is divisive, right? It, it, you would never claim continuity between those kinds of sins. They are very, very different. It'd be like saying, you know, in the past, we used to, it used to be legal to beat your wife half to death and to rape them legally, right? In the past. And a, a Christian today who is unkind to their wife is really doing the same sorts of things to their wife. And they're complicit in misogyny in the same kind of way. And I would say, no, they are not. They, you might argue they're still being unkind, and they shouldn't be, but they're not complicit in misogyny like the man who's beating his wife half to death. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to, now again, I'm not saying, therefore we can ignore unkindness. We can ignore people who are racially indifferent in a bad way. Okay, I'm not saying we should ignore that, but we can't accuse them of being the same kind of, having the same kind of sin as a man stealer, an enslaver. There, that's a, there's a difference there. And we have, we should, and I said this actually on a different podcast, um, we need to be honestly more grateful for God's grace to this nation and to Christians. God has done miraculous things in our hearts and in this nation to turn us from our wickedness. And that, and, and faithful saints have prayed for centuries that our country could be a place where there was no longer slavery, where men were treated equally, you know, and, and to pretend that didn't happen, that God has not done a miraculous thing to forgive our, to change our wicked hearts. That's ingratitude. So I, I'm not saying there's nothing left to do, but I'm saying we need to see the differences and be, and praise God for his mercy on sinners like us in doing that great work. Um, so, it's a, and, and I think that will change the way we see this discussion. And really briefly, sorry, I know I talked a lot. One last thing, the entire book, and this is, if we have time to talk about Be the Bridge, and it's the same theme. Here's what Tisby says. There can be no reconciliation without repentance, and there can be no confession without truth. The color of compromise is telling, is about telling the truth so that reconciliation, robust, consistent, honest reconciliation might occur across racial lines. So here's, so here's the thinking. We can't reconcile until we repent, and we can't repent until we confess, and we can't confess until we tell the truth. But what truth is he telling? This book is mainly about history, slavery, Jim Crow, black codes, redlining. But these are things that I did not commit. I did not own slaves. I, 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 did, I mean, I'm, and also I'm half Indian, but what I could forget that for a second. Okay. But no one alive today owns, owns slaves. No one did. No one alive, to, well, very few people alive today, I, uh, but you know, very few people alive today had any, had any part in Jim Crow. Uh, well, okay, there are some probably older people, but you know what I'm saying? The point is, so many people today in their t- 20s and 30s, in no so do how you're saying that they need to confess that has to be truth telling and confession on their part and then repentance. And then there can be reconciliation across racial lines. Think about that statement. Is that really true? Cause what you're saying is when a black person walks into your church, there's automatically a barrier between them and a random white person. 
because of their races. And, and that is, has is to be man. This is what I've is been saying. Is there a fan nearby? <laughs> yes. Is there a fan nearby? Yes. Black, in black church, we fan you when you speak the truth. Did <laughs> <laughs> you have to say amen or preach it or something? Yes, like, amen. I need, more. Preach, I need more. Preach. I need more. Thank you. All right. There you go. Preach. Miss. Come but, on. This is what I've been saying. Yeah. Pat, so Pat and I actually have an essay on the, the, the biblical truth that, um, that whites are not guilty for historic ancestral racial sin. A, a random white person does not bear guilt for the sins of other white people they never met, they have no, even, even their ancestors, but they don't. They didn't, they didn't commit the sin. They don't bear guilt for it. And they can't, the thing, they can't repent for it. And therefore, you cannot say that there can't be reconciliation without repentance because they, didn't, they can't repent of things they didn't do. So, and if we, if we believe that, okay, if you believe, if you really believe there has to be this reconciliation between blacks and whites, right? What does that really mean? Is that true? What do you do with like, again, a black and white friend who are, they're just best friends. And suddenly you come to them and say, well, has there been truth telling about slavery? You know, they're like, what? Has there, has there been confession by the white guy and repentance and then reconciliation? And you'd look at them and say, and they'd look at you and be like, does there need to be? Because there does not need to be. What about a, a white wife and her black husband? Are they not reconciled? Uh, and this is where we get into theology. In the Bible, New Testament, Paul declares there, we were reconciled first to God by the cross, past tense, Ephesians 2. And then because of that, Christ tore down, also past tense, the dividing wall of hostility, past tense. It is done. Now, if I sin against you, Monique, if I spit in your face, then we're not reconciled and I have to repent and there has to be reconciliation and forgiveness. But barring an actual sin by me against you personally, we are reconciled, period, done, in the past once and for all. So that very framework for saying that we need truth-telling, before there can be confession, we need confession before repentance, we need repentance before there can be reconciliation. I'm like, that whole model is wrong. Now, you might say, well, there should be, we have to grow in unity. Where there is mistrust between races, there should be growing, we should work for trust. That's fine. If all you mean is, by reconciliation, if all you mean is, let's work towards unity, let's work to remove mistrust that's there, that's fine. That kind of reconciliation, I would call that unity. But if you want to call it reconciliation, I'm fine with that. But let's make very clear that a white person and a black person do not need to reconcile if neither of them have personally actually sinned against the other one. They are reconciled in Christ, period. And they can live that out and find joy in that. I can walk into a black church and embrace my brothers and sisters in Christ, period. The end of story. They don't have to look at me and be like, well, is he? Zero. And we have to, that should be a joyous reality as Christians that we can embrace every single day. So, and that's, uh, we probably don't have time for Be the Bridge, but that's the main concern I have with Latasha Morrison's book. It just assumes without argument that there is this racial barrier between whites and blacks that needs to be overcome through this whole process. And I would say, no, there doesn't. Now, again, there can be growth in unity. There can be, uh, you know, removal of mistrust, but I don't have to come into church 
thinking I am not reconciled to my brother in Christ because of our race. Oh, Neil, if I was in black church right now, I would have a choir and a good shout. (laughs) I would, oh, I would have my elbows. Go, Neil. Yes, we gonna shout that down. Come on, Neil. Yes. Look at y'all. Shout. Hey. Yes. Yes. See, y'all don't even know. All right. You are done. That is it. Now, if you are new to Black Church, we will dance and shout when we hear a good word. And that was a good word. Oh, yes. I, I, I don't know if you've been listening in to some of the things that we've been talking about. Or if you've just been in the same Bible that we've been in, <laughs> I think it's the latter that, yes, we we can t- we can talk about how do we get to unity? How do we walk out unity? But we are reconciled. We don't you don't have to do all this work to get to reconciliation. We don't have to do a bunch of works. You know, if you're white, you don't have to do a bunch of reading the books doing all the anti-racist, making sure that you, you know, declare yourself anti-racist on your tax forms and that your doctor know you're anti-racist and all this stuff. We have, the dividing wall has been broken. That's it. There, there is no, no more work to make us any more reconciled than what Christ has done. Neil, you put that so beautifully. I almost pulled down my own braid. Okay, now I have a question. One thing thing I want to say, on the other side, just to be be balanced here, uh, I liked it because some people will hear that and say, see, you you need to get over this, all this reconciliation garbage, this is Marxist stuff, I'm talking about that. Well, let me make an analogy here. Imagine there's a woman in your church who had actually been sexually assaulted multiple times. A woman had been sexually assaulted by men in her life, by multiple different men, multiple times. She comes to your church, she's a believer, and she's still a little bit nervous around men. And she's, you know, she just is very, she's, she, so are you like, man, get over it. Galatians 3.26 says there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. You need to get over your problems because I am not going to assault you. And how dare you think that, that, what does Paul say should be the Christian's attitude towards serving our brothers in Christ? How can I lay down my rights? How can I, how can I bless my brother or sister in Christ and not stand on my dignity, stand, stand on my rights mm-hmm. in order to love them? Love hopes all things, believes all things, will stand all things. So in that situation, you don't, you don't recognize immediately, if you go up to that poor woman and start mouthing off about how dare you be, I, are you are you you're anti-male, you're probably a radical feminist who hates men? I would pull you aside and be like, what on earth is wrong with you? <laughs> Have you read 1 Corinthians 8? So the point is that in the same way, there are people of color, and, and let me be honest, there are probably whites in your church yes. who have experienced actual racism, who have been, have been called names, even worse, have been experienced violence. That exists in the U.S. today. Are you going to walk in there, you know, and, and you know what, you, you don't know me. How do you, why are you thinking this? Just say, look, how can I embrace you? How can I sympathize with your, your, your emotions, your legitimate emotions? How can I do my best to show you that I will not treat you that way, that I love you in Christ, 
then I, I want to do everything I can to rebuild your trust. So don't use that truth that we are reconciled in Christ as an excuse to do exactly what Paul says not to do, to lord it over others, to not love them, to not be gentle and patient with them, and to, again, to sympathize with, and we talked about their weaknesses. In a sense, if a woman is so wounded by her past that she is suspicious of men in general, that's a weakness. She shouldn't be feeling that way about people that she doesn't even know, and yet sympathize with her weakness. Don't, don't, don't abuse it, don't wound her. And, and so I, my only point is, don't use what I'm saying as an excuse yes. to be a, just a big fat jerk in yes. church. Definitely. Use it as, so a, good. As, as an incentive to love, to sympathize. You know, people are like, well, then I don't even have to read about all this terrible history. Why not? This is U.S. history. Are you an American citizen? Yes. Read about the good parts of our country's history and the bad parts, right? We're not God's covenant people. And even God's covenant people, whether Christians are, the United States is not. And even God's covenant nation of Israel was a disaster. Read Judges. So we don't have to hide our real sins and failings in order to not to whitewash our past. We can admit that and sympathize with the destruction racism in the past has caused and work to heal it without adopting this false view of white ancestral guilt. There, I'm done again. All right. Neil, I have a question. Yes. Can we quickly talk about Be the Bridge? I, I'm here all night. I, I, I will do as long as you want, but I don't <laughs> want right. to bore you guys. All right. All right. Okay. So we're going we gonna to hit on it. I know we're over time. Thank you guys for sticking in with us. Um, but these books, gosh, they're being promoted in so many churches. We want to make sure that we get as much in as we can. And Neil is bringing the fire tonight. Yes. Yes. So, okay. Um, Be the Bridge. Tell us a bit about the author, her come from, um, worldview, what worldview she she supports. So she, uh, Latasha Morrison, is the founder of Be the Bridge. I couldn't find much about her resume. She has a degrees in human development and business leadership. She lives in Atlanta. Uh, she's a Christian, and Be the Bridge group is explicitly Christian. Uh, it's a group that spawns a lot of smaller racial reconciliation groups or sponsors them around the country and churches. And she wrote this book, Be the Bridge. Uh, and she's a large Facebook group called Be the Bridge, which is quite active too. So what is the big idea from, from this book? So the big idea is just that we can, as Christians, we can, it's very, it's very much for Christians, but we can achieve racial reconciliation if we follow a path from humility to lament, to confession, forgiveness, and then restoration. And so she writes on pages nine and 10, if we come together in a posture of humility, we can start to bridge the racial divide, a bridge that lifts up marginalized voices, a bridge of voices that is about equity of marginalized voices, not equality. She says that, actually. <laughs> equity, not equality, she says. I pray you'll join a movement of bridge builders who are fighting for oneness and unity, not uniformity, in such a time as this. So that's their sort of thesis statement. Uh, and the, 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 the book walks through that, that series of humility, then lament, confession, forgiveness, restoration, and then sort of multiplication through these beads of the bridge be the bridge groups that will work to create racial unity. And then the goal is, you know, it's, it's here, it's fighting for oneness and unity. That's a, that's a good thing. I think, and actually uh, I have a friend who was part of this, I have many friends who are part of this group or were or are. And in its early days, they, they felt like the, the groups they were in 
really did foster these deep relationships and unity that did bridge racial divides. And I think we can admit, again, we can admit there are racial divides. There is mistrust. It's not wrong for Christians to work to, to tear that down. And, 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 and it should start for Christians. It should start by saying, you're my sister, you're my brother. So what can we do to hear one another's stories and, and understand one another so we can really just get to know one another as, as Jesus' people? Um, so yeah, all of that's a good thing. Um, and in the book, she, uh, she mainly tells personal stories. She does, you know, talk about history, things like lynching. So she'll cite accounts of lynching and different racial disparities, but it's, it's largely a book about, uh, you know, her own journey. And Monique, I got to ask you, this is, this has really been puzzling me. Do, do, have people ever touched your hair without asking? Yes. They have? Okay, look. I, now, I, I don't remember if Latasha is in her book. I think she does. But I know that, um, that uh, who was it? Um, Lo mentions it in her book, How to Talk About Race. I say you want to talk about race. Um, I think Austin Channing Brown talks about it in her book. Um, I'm still here. But a number of black women have t- said that strangers will touch their hair and i'm like they what now i, I just <laughs> yes yes and okay, i always so correct thing. you yeah i will correct you you do not touch my hair yes but I, i'm like, but, I'm like but yes so i mean maybe i'm just an east coaster here but i'm like that's insane I, I, touching <laughs> someone's hair do you know how nasty that is that's that's a, i don't yeah, know where your hands have been I, I, I just want to know because I, I, I read that over and over again. I'm like, I, there, this happens. This, they, they're reporting this frequently enough, but I'm so, I cannot fathom that. Or even, I, I can't fathom that happening, but I can't fathom the kind of person who would do that. It's but I mean, maybe I'm just from, I'm from Delaware. So maybe it's a Delaware thing, but we don't touch your hair. Whether <laughs> you're white or black or, we just don't touch hair. <laughs> okay, whatever. I was just curious, but yeah. So, she has several stories like like that. I'm not sure if she has that story, but where people will just do these really, they're weird, but they're also insensitive. Like for me, like if a, if a, as a as a as a man, if someone touched my hair, I'd be like that. You're that's don't do that. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so yeah. So there, but she tells stories like that. And they're like, yeah, man, woo. I would feel super awkward. And that happens to her over and over again in like white churches. So that does, it's the kind of thing where a be the bridge group, you share those stories. And I'm like, man, I had no idea people would do that. Cause yeah, I would be completely offended, just freaked out if people were always touching my hair and other things like that. Again, she tells stories in her book. So that's the kind of thing where these relational groups can be, I think, very effective in saying, I had no idea that that's a thing for you. And yeah, it makes me sympathetic to the fact that your experiences are very different than mine. It so is. I, all, so fine. Yeah. I mean, one day I can have braids. The next day I can have my hair in an afro. The next day I can press my hair and it can be, you know, past my shoulders and just flowing back and forth. But it won't flow too much, especially if it's hot outside. But I mean, like I, my hair can be quite versatile and people are like, oh my gosh, what did you do to your hair? And they want to touch it. And that's a whole other situation. Always, people but do comment about her hair a lot. M- much more than they, it, it has yeah. been in my experience as a white woman. They, they And people don't even like 
recognize her. White people don't recognize her if her hair is a little different. So I, I went to work. <laughs> I went to work one day and I had my hair in braids. The next day I went to church that evening. I had taken my hair down, went to church to a church where um, a lot of the people at my work went to. People didn't rec- didn't did the woman I served her went, communion. They, the lady, one of the ladies served me communion and was like, "Hi, are you new here?" And I was like, "No, I I'm just your talked to you yesterday." <laughs> yes, yes. Like literally, I can't make this up. But yeah. I don't. But see, okay. So here's another thing, though. It's like, yes, people can be inquisitive, and yes, it can work my nerve. But do I then consider that a microaggression? Yeah. Like I don't know that 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 gives me room to to say, well, you did that because. Because you're racist, I can say, well, I think you did that because you're inquisitive because maybe your hair, my hair is different than yours. <laughs> I'm more tolerant with that when a child does it. Like, yeah. I remember one time I jumped into a swimming pool. I, I took kids to camp and I, and I can't swim. So I jumped into the kitty end. I'm not even going to lie. I am not trying to swim. But I jumped in and I went under the water and now and I came back up. My hair was basically dry. Like, and this kid was like, what in the world? (laughs) You went under the water. Now, I'm more tolerant, you know, to kids. But when an adult is like, can I touch your hair? And what does it feel like? And, you know, how? mm -mm, don't touch. Now, our friend Zach is saying he got that all the time in South Korea and Ethiopia. People would pet his arm hair. (laughs) Now, Zach's white. He lives in Portland. (laughs) No. Uh, Okay. I don't know. Whatever. I'm just saying that. So that that's the thing. Like, I I, I can see how a per, oh, you know a black woman could come into a group and be like, "This is getting on my last nerve. Like, <laughs> stop touching my hair." And that's the kind of thing where, yeah, I do think that as Christians, on the one hand, you have to be like, "Okay, I understand it's really annoying." On the other hand, you can't assume that they're like have really wicked yeah. motives. On the other hand, I expect some sympathy if someone were. If I had to walk outside and be worried about people touching my hair all the time, I would want some people to be like, I'm sorry, that's just really stupid. You have to deal with that. So it goes both ways. I think this is where we have charity. We see where people are coming from. Anyway, so that's all fine. I think Latasha does a lot of stuff in the book that's like that. It's helpful to be like, man, yeah, okay, I didn't realize that was still that, that you had to deal with that. And yeah, it's a, it's a huge annoyance and even it's insulting. I can see that. I, I sympathize. But where I think she goes wrong, again, was this idea that she, she seems to believe that whites have ancestral guilt they need to repent of. Mm-hmm. And she appeals to Ezra 9, 6, Daniel 9, 8, and that she says they're both personally innocent, but came under guilt and shame nonetheless. So Pat and I have a long article where we go through Ezra 9, Daniel, Nehemiah, Deuteronomy, and we talk about what those passages actually mean and argue that, no, people do not bear the sins that they didn't commit. They're not guilty for things they didn't commit. Um, and so that, that's just, I think, a basic biblical principle. And then that will then play into how she views repentance. So she talks about how then whites need to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So number one, there's a false idea that whites have to repent for things they didn't do. They have to do that. And then, biblically speaking, she's correct that repentance involves fruit. If you don't produce the fruit of repentance, you have not repented. Well, what kind of fruit does repentance from ancestral sin bear? And she says, reparations. She says, reparations and repentance are inextricably intertwined. 
and those who've inherited the power and benefits of past wrongs should work to make it right for those who've inherited the burdens of oppression of the past. Preparations require sacrifice, but effective bridge builders don't shy away from Jesus' call to go and sin no more, a call that includes making things right. Like Zacchaeus, effective bridge builders must return what was taken, even if it hurts. So here, she really seems to be saying, white ancestors sinned, they're guilty of that in some way, and they need to repent of that in some way, and that repentance entails the fruit, which is returning what was taken through reparations. Now, that forget, I'm not going to go into that in detail, but the, that whole chain of reasoning is really deeply flawed. Um, and again, I, I, Pat talked to you about reparations on one of your episodes. You know, we don't take the view that anything that might be called reparations is, ne- is automatically wicked. Uh, obviously, the Bible, if you steal from someone, you must rep- make reparations to them. That's reparations. But that's very different. So, so the idea of reparations in that sense is biblical, but that's not the same sense that we're using it today to say we're talking about things that happened 150 years ago, and now you have to pay for those even though you didn't do them. So we want to be very careful here that you can say reparations in one sense is obviously biblical. You pay for things you stole. In another sense, we can discuss it, but it's a very different category now of saying that people are now guilty for things they didn't do. They didn't even necessarily benefit from it. A poor white person today, are you saying that they have to pay uh, reparations to a very rich black person today? How is that going to actually work in practice? It's a very different discussion. Uh, anyway, so that, 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 but the premise there, then Pat and Pat and I were totally aligned in saying, regardless of what you think of reparations, you have to completely reject the idea, reject wholesale that whites today are guilty for sins they did not commit. That's false. That's deeply so false. we're gonna we put a link to your article in the chat, and we'll okay. make sure to put it in the in the show notes as well. Um, I think it was interesting a few weeks ago that Latasha's ministry be the bridge released an extended kind of explanation a position statement if you will of you know critical race theory and their relationship to it they clearly say at the beginning of the document which i've which i've read um that they are a biblically based ministry but then they go on to say they they find the the crt framework to be you know, useful, it, useful and informative yeah. mm-hmm. for their work. So they they are being more clear that they are borrowing from at least aspects of CRT. Yeah, they, they are very clear that they are using that as a framework. They do sort of say briefly, they don't disagree with all of it, but they don't really spell out exactly what they disagree with. <laughs> they, just, right. they just go on to say that here are all the things we agree with. That it's a useful lens to view racial reality and racism. So, yeah, this is it, it, so on their own account. It, this is being influenced by critical race theory. And that, and the last thing I'll say about the book is that, and this is also, if you understand critical race theory, this is very typical of critical race theory. But Morrison tends to equate disagreement with blindness. So she writes, if we avoid hard truths to preserve personal comfort or to fashion a facade of peace, our division will only widen. In the context of racial reconciliation, shame and guilt often compel majority culture 
to cover up and whitewash sins. You don't see many white people attending churches of color or ethnically diverse churches as bridge builders. Why? Maybe it's because seeking ethnically diverse churches would highlight their complicity in structures of racism, and that complicity would bring so much shame and guilt. Terms such as reparations, affirmative action, white privilege, and Black Lives Matter are non-starters for so many folks, in part because they disrupt the listener. They remind him or her that making things right costs something, often power, position, or money. So that's in the threat of page, page 24, 67, 77, 154. The point is, she tends to say, and she doesn't come out and directly say it and say, if you disagree with me, it's because you're blind. But this, this it was always this, well, it could be because, it's often because, it could be because of you're your, 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 your feeling guilty, you want to retain your privilege, and that's why you're disagreeing with me, you're avoiding these hard truths, you're unwilling to part with your power. And that's a dangerous way to frame these discussions again, like I said with Tisby's book, because you basically make it impossible to, or very hard to disagree with you. If you say, if, for example, if I said, uh, now, if Morrison's listening or Tisby's listening to this podcast, they're going to disagree with me. And it's because they're trying to smuggle Marxism into the church. That's why they're going to disagree with me. If I say that, I would not say that. If I said that I'm poisoning the well, how, what can they do? If, if they disagree with me, I'll say, see, aha, that's evidence. I told you they'd do that. They're, try, they're, doing, they're disagreeing because they're secretly Marxist. Well, that's not a way to have a fruitful discussion. And actually, it's a dangerous way for Christians to approach a topic by impugning the motives of the people making these claims. The right way to think about it is, are the claims true or false? I don't care what your motives are. I can't speculate. I'm not God. I can only go on what you've actually said. So, so I think we need to take motives off the table because philosophically, that's simply the genetic fallacy. It doesn't matter what their motives are. Their claims are either true or false. They're either biblical or unbiblical. Let's ask that question first and really ignore the motivations because we don't know them. So those are my brief takes on that book. That's good. And, you know, we've gotten a lot of letters from people who have been in a Be the Bridge group who have reported things very consistent with what you're saying. I mean, yeah. they, they said, you know, I found some value there. I did, um, you know, I, I became more aware. I, you know, it was a good opportunity for me. And the longer that I was in it, I started kind of the shorthand version of his some people got damaged. Yeah, I think that one, I really think that Latasha Morrison started out with a very good heart for yeah. for Unity. I think that, you know, she really wanted to go that way. I'm not sure if, you know, there was some derailing. I'm not really sure what happened, but I think there's a disconnect almost between her book and her groups. And I've yeah. been a part of her groups. And Neil, you've I know you've been a part of her groups too. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I do. I I think that many people who write into us, they're usually writing in about the groups um, yeah. and then are very concerned when, when their pastors then recommend the book, yeah. not understanding that there's, there's definite, in my opinion, disconnect between what I read in the book and what I see in the group. Yeah. Yeah, there is, there's a lot of disconnect and yeah, the group, um, that, yeah, the, you should read their document, which is available publicly. Um, I think still it's called a whiteness 101 and the 
the guidelines they have for white members Mm -hmm. and not for other members, but for white members only uh, are very heavily influenced. They're taken from critical race theory. Yeah. And they basically say whites need to listen and agree. That's Mm -hmm. that's like the one sentence statement that their guidelines are whites are there to listen and agree. And if you disagree, you did not disagree. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, let, let the people of color have full vent to their emotions. Don't contradict them. If they call you racist, just take it. Uh, don't be fragile. And it, it really ends up being, and then what does that do? Um, the, the really dangerous thing it does is it makes it impossible to correct error. Uh, basically, a person of color can say anything and people are at the very least, they're uncomfortable correcting them because they've been told that's white fragility. And it can extend even to matters of really serious orthodoxy. So the Facebook group, when I was there, there were some very unorthodox ideas, very unorthodox ideas Mm -hmm. that were allowed to, I mean, to the point where people would say things like, I don't, I can't read the Bible anymore because it's an oppressive book. And Mm -hmm. people would be, but they say, people would actually come in and say, don't correct her for saying that. Mm-hmm. Don't just let her, let her vent and people will be sympathizing and empathizing and saying, we feel you. That's the same thing with us too. And I'm kind of sitting there horrified thinking they they don't need I mean, empathy is fine, but they also need admonition and warning. But the way you set up the group, they're not permitted to get any. Yeah. So that's, and that, so basically outright heresy can spread totally unchecked because if you disagree and you're, if you disagree and you're white, it's your right fragility. If you disagree and you're a person of color, you're not speaking with an authentic voice. So, Monique, I know you know what that means, but you're, you know, you, you're not giving a black perspective if you disagree with some statement an authentic black voice puts forward. So, yeah, it's, we, it's a really, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, you called it whiteness 101. Yeah. Um, for those of you who attend our family meeting, he's talking about, the, it's the same thing, um, the 16 tips for white people. Yeah. And so the, these are the things that he's referring to, you know, all of these things that uh, that could so easily allow heresy to creep in. It doesn't um, allow for correction and things like that. But the one that that gets me the most is when I think it's number 11, when they say, you know, as white people, we need to understand the anger and emotion of people of color and so if they if they yell at you, swear at you, cuss at you, yeah. cuss, cuss at you, whatever, like you just need to take it, take it. and don't don't respond. <laughs> I'm too fragile. I'm too I'm not the one. I don't care if you black, white, green, purple with polka dots. Don't cuss at me because I'm just I'm going I will own and acknowledge my own. My own humanness and fragility will get me in trouble. Well, the other thing that, ha- that happened in the Facebook group, and this happens, unfortunately, happens on Twitter, uh, and, and that's not just on the left, but on the right, too. You have these echo chambers where there's one narrative, and it gets, it gets and so this, is a, this is an interesting, I'll be brief here. We, our country is 300 million people, 300 million. In 300 million people all living their lives every day, there's lots of terrible stuff that happens. There's terrible stuff that happens that's done by whites to whites. It's done, you know, it was a, done to whites by whites, to whites by blacks, to blacks by whites, to blacks by blacks, to women by men, to women by. So, in a country this big, you can find videos that are horrific of any possible combination of any people. 
But if in certain echo chambers, whether it's on the right or on the left, you can build a narrative that tells you whatever you want to hear. So if I wanted to, I could, I could just run some numbers for you, but I could have a group where I posted every single day a video of, say, I'll just use uh, an, an Asian person uh, doing something horrible to someone else every single day. I mean, I think you, if I wanted to, I could even do a drawing from like Asian countries. <laughs> but but I could, every day I could post a new outrageous video of an Asian person doing something bad. And I could, but if I told you now, I don't want you to contradict my, this narrative. That's, that's fragility. I don't want you to speak up on Asians' behalf. I just want you to just take it and understand. We have to, we have to come to terms with this truth. These are true videos. You know, they're true. They're, I bet they're police reports. But the narrative being told there would be, would be totally unbalanced and actually very dangerous because I'm subtly saying something about Asian people. It's actually feeding racism. And the same thing was happening, frankly, in this group, because there's every day there's a new true outrage, in many cases, against a person of color. But that was the only side people were telling. And you weren't allowed to tell anything else. You weren't allowed to give context. You weren't allowed to say anything else. And people were actually getting, I could watch them emotionally getting angrier and angry and more and more bitter and more and more. I'm like, this is not good for the church. And by the guidelines, you were not allowed to offer correction, context. You were not allowed to say, this is unhealthy. That was forbidden. Yeah. So that kind of a group, and again, I want to emphasize, it happens on both sides. Mm -hmm. That is going to destroy the church, whereas we should be focusing on, I'm not saying we should ignore the truth. We should be able to put the truth in context. We should be able to ask, is this, is this helpful? Is this biblical? Is this edifying? Am I, or am I, am I feeding, am I poking at this gaping wound and making it wider and wider and wider rather than trying to heal it? So, and I think these rules are set up to increase and exacerbate alienation, not to heal it. Wow, Neil, we really appreciate all your time tonight. You've really brought a ton of information, teaching, truth. Um, I want to encourage everyone to go get connected to Neil on Twitter. Uh, go check out his website for more book reviews. ShinviApologetics.com. Yeah, Um, And also uh, go check out Neil's article that just came out on The Federalist. Uh, oh, yeah. That... It has some good stuff there. We posted it on our page yesterday uh, mm-hmm. talking about uh, equality and equity in public education. Some very thoughtful things there. So go check that out on The Federalist. And Emily will put that in the um, chat box for everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Neil. I have like 45 other questions for you, but it's late. You're on the East Coast. I can come back. <laughs> I enjoy this show. All right. Yes, we will have you. Thank you so much. much. Thank you, ladies. All right. right. Bye. Bye. Man. I I love Cousin Neil. Man, he's just so articulate. Yes. He says things just, he has all these examples and and it it is so helpful. And Mm -hmm. And he's um, so humble with it. Yeah. 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 If I was the smartest Neil, I'd be like, listen here. (laughs) Stop. So it's good show. Good, good idea for a show. Thank you. I yeah. try. I try every once in a while. That was good. Have an idea yeah. that comes through. Yeah. You know, 
So um, go make sure that you share the show. I'll break up the reviews into four shorter videos throughout the week. And we'll release those on YouTube and Facebook on the Center for Biblical Unity. So you can go, uh, it'll be in a more shareable format. Yeah. And so you don't have to sit through all two hours at one time. I'll break them up into smaller pieces for everybody. So, hey, Sarah, my friend Sarah Johnson's watching. Yes. Sorry, I'm just going to go ahead and give her a shout out right now. (laughs) Hey, Sarah. Yes. All right. You guys, it is time for us to go because we have bedtimes. It's about that time for me. I need to eat. Yes. Thank you so much. Please share the show. Check out um, the Center for Biblical Unity on our website, centerforbiblicalunity.com. Check out Krista's website at theologymom.com. You can read her blogs. Um, you last just week, did a, a live stream last mm-hmm. week. Yeah. You, she had a guest on even. It was me. I talked about racial reconciliation. Is it a thing? Is it biblical? Neil just basically echoed my whole live stream. Yeah. Tonight, but it was great. I mean, we're reading the same Bible. We're reading we're the same Bible. Come, coming to the same conclusions. Yes. So um, it's good to check out. We just did a deep dive into 2 Corinthians 5.18 and the question of, is racial reconciliation a thing from a biblical point of view? So yeah. um, you can go check that out. Thank yes. you so much Thank you, everyone. for joining us tonight. This has been a great conversation. Take care and God bless. We'll Bye. See you next week. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.